Jason. Hey. How's it going? <laughs> hey, not too bad, not too bad. I'm growing out a bit of a beard. Yeah, I was just going to say, it looks like you've just stepped off of a, a transatlantic uh, sort of sail. It, uh, it would look like I said I just stepped off of a transatlantic uh, sail bar the fact that I'm not super sun-kissed. Like, whenever I hang out at the uh, at the sailing club, there are people who are weathered. Yeah, yeah. They've got the, the, the leather boot kind of uh, faces. Um, I'm also, mine's also like, quite scraggly but i look more like a bum than a than a sailor <laughs> i'd say um so i i would probably be like the new the new kind of maybe i work for the times or something and i'm trying to uh do a, a little piece on what it's like to be a sailor right or you could be you could be a uh, tech entrepreneur who has just made it big and realized that life holds no joy from frivolous spending bought yourself a boat and decided to you know, live a, a chilled life, traveling from place to place slowly, mindfulness, you know. Yeah. No more fast-paced lifestyle for you. I mean, it must be quite it must be quite an interesting experience once you head o- over the horizon. Suddenly there's no coastline anymore and you're mm-hmm. in the middle of the ocean and maybe it's been a couple of days. It must be quite a, maybe a daunting experience if you haven't done it before. I'm just trying to, you know, put myself in that position, what I would be thinking. You'd probably be thinking, I really hope that my sextant works. I hope the sextant works. I hope there is, uh, I hope the world is still still uh, round. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can you imagine going on a, like a two month transatlantic voyage on like a 26 foot yacht uh, in like, let's say February of 2020 and then arriving at the port of call and there's no one anywhere and you you just like walk out of your boat onto the marina and like one guy kind of scurries up to you with a mask and he's like excuse me sir can i please take your temperature and you're like are there zombies here <laughs> get back on your boat like like row row oh, out shit, yeah they probably would they'd probably tell you to get back on your boat it, i think it'd probably be a better experience than than being you know locked up in a room i was browsing through different ships or like uh, yachts for sale and uh, there's some pretty scraggly <laughs> looking yachts they can be quite small and and some of the yachts that you see for sale they're like built in the 50s and 60s or like they're you know, 20 30 years old when we were sailing we were sailing in a pretty old south african built uh 28 foot sailing yacht i believe I think it was a, a Mera, a Myra, a Mera? Mira, yeah. A, a uh, Panama-rigged sloop. A sloop, yeah. Can you can you tell me what defines a Panama-rigged sloop, Jason? Yeah, uh, you're, you're, you're pressuring me now. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's having a... So the Panama rig is, is the, the configuration of the mainsail and the, the jib. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, the sloop is that the mainsail is uh, behind foresail, right? It, I, it could be, actually. So I, I prepared over here and I made sure that I had the competent crew course book with me. Oh, yeah. And there are the sloop is, yeah, it's just the 
mainsail with a front jib. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, for those who are probably listening, we we actually did some sailing courses. Uh, it must have been like three, must have been like at least four months ago. It was still summer, so it must have been like seven or eight months ago. It was right at the beginning of this year, I'd say in like March. Hmm. Yeah, it was around March because I think I was planning to leave in April. I still haven't been on a boat since then. Really? I've been on Whitney's Whitney's new Habibi, but I haven't actually sailed since then. And yeah. it's one of those things that's like the the final couple of days that we were sailing together, there were just, you know, whales just yeah. diving in and out around the boat and some dolphins and penguins. And it was such a magical experience. And winter in Cape Town, as you know, is quite a, a wet affair. Uh, and I can't imagine like getting out into the boat and just like raining and cold after having such gorgeous sailing weather in what, February, March. Yeah. And uh, I I told you about that that storm. So I I read that book called Wrecked, uh, and that I think it was in 1865. It was around about May. There was uh, what they called the Great Storm, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it, the storm raged on for 18 hours. And uh, by the end of it, there were 17 ocean-going vessels that were wrecked, uh, and about 30 sort of smaller boats were all wrecked in the in Table Bay. So. That's a lot of carnage, uh, and that's I believe a lot of wreck. lost their lives in that one storm. So, <laughs> if that's any any consolation of not going out when it's winter in Cape Town, I think that's a that's a good good reminder. Yeah, I, I definitely say that like sailing in the Mediterranean is uh, a lot more chilled than sailing around the Cape of Good Hope. <laughs> I my gran has a a friend who was. Uh, selling there they've also just been doing a bunch of sailing around the world and uh the comment from them was that it it, they've definitely noticed over over many years of sailing that the seas are changing uh and that's you know probably because of the climate changes all around the globe so i mean it sounds like now's now's the best time ever to be Mm -hmm. buying a boat and actually going sailing because you know it could get worse that makes sense and i mean it's i guess it's not necessarily I, the, the seas are are changing certainly um but we have just noticed that weather patterns in general are changing we're getting more and more extreme weather your hurricanes and your your tropical storms and this and that so it's certainly becoming unpredictable so you've got the old sailors who are like i know these seas like the back of my hand and then it's like boom hurricane and you know, all that's yeah. found is just a bright red beanie on the seashore. Yeah, exactly. From a scale of one to ten, how ready are you to cross an ocean right now? Ooh, uh, to cross an ocean, I would say a firm like. Uh, okay, let me let me preface this with a question: um, Is there a captain? Like, is there a competent? Either you or I are the captain. <laughs> oh no, I. Definitely not. Well, you and I cannot cross the ocean right now, Jason. I'm gonna just put that out there. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm 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 pretty optimistic about about quite a lot of things, but the if something goes wrong in this specific case, we have zero ocean going experience. <laughs> we we got through the comp crew course pretty well. 
right? But it's it was also like such mild weather the entire time that it's like, okay, uh, we're going to, you know, be doing a whole bunch of reefing of the main sail. Now, reefing of the main sail is done when there's like extra amounts of wind and you just need to reduce the the area of the main sail to make sure that you don't keel over too much. And uh, we were doing it in, you know, yeah, a mild breeze. It's like, all right, let's uh, take it down to the first reefing point. And you go through the entire thing. Now, imagine trying to do that, but the things like, you know, really lilting over and you're like clipped in, getting hit with waves. Yeah, you have to be really clipped in. And and also in, in researching for this episode, uh, I found out two things. One of them is that uh, having a banana on a ship, especially a private boat, is considered bad luck. And I think on two occasions that trip, we actually had bananas on the boat. And uh, the second one is that also whistling is considered bad luck. Okay, neat. I think Nick was probably a little bit... <laughs> Probably a little bit nervous because he seemed like uh, the kind of person he was, you know, all up into the, the traditions. Mm. I'm currently reading a book called uh, Red Seas Under Red Skies. And it's all, you know, it's pirate, it's pirates and, and all of that and sailing. And uh, it's a thrilling read, but their superstitions in the book is that um, you have to make sure that you have cats on your ship. Right. Yeah. Because cats, obviously, they take care of the mice. Um, and rats and stuff, but also uh, the the deity of the ocean, Iono, just really likes cats, so wouldn't want to sink a vessel that has cats on it. And then if the cats disappear off of the vessel, like or if they die, it's considered mm-hmm. like a really, really bad omen, and you'd better get to the nearest point of call and find yourself some cats because something has gone terribly wrong and Iono is coming for you. I mean, even if you just have them for company, yeah exactly i mean except except for yourself and like and me to a certain extent because i think we're quite allergic to them so <laughs> yeah uh, it would have to be a cat that stays outside and is waterproof uh, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, if you're afrikaans you can get a sea cat yeah <laughs> or just a catfish <laughs> or a catfish yeah just like have it you know chill with you in a barrel <laughs> yeah apparently it's quite an easy trip if you go from the Canary Islands down to, I think it's Cape Verde, and then you enter mm. around the around the equator, and uh, there was like a whole bunch of uh, superstitions around when you cross the equator. There's like a certain it's like a certain badge of honor in the sailing world, uh, and there's certain sort of ceremonies that were practiced once you cross the equator because it's considered like a sign of competence, right? Nice. uh, Interestingly, it's also there's a lot of symbology in uh, the tattoos that pirates would have around sailing. So uh, things like after getting five thousand nautical miles, uh, I think you had uh, you know one of those. I think it was like a swallow that you got tattooed onto you. Ooh, I've got a swallow. Yeah. Yeah, I got a swallow on my arm over here, and it's the traditional form of swallow. Oh yeah, so that's a sailing tattoo, huh? It is a sailing tattoo, and it's actually interesting because a lot of a lot of uh, there's a lot of like uh, you know tattooing was part of the pirates' way of you know showing to a certain degree what they'd done. Uh, you know, 
and then there was also crosses and a lot of uh words like writing about like you know lost parents and you know you always see that mom tattoo uh that's yeah. kind of got its tradition in uh pirates and and those kind of things so it's quite interesting and then also you have things like uh i think i read here so pirates would often have the words hold fast tattooed onto their knuckles okay in order to protect them from falling well a lot so <laughs> if you can think as a, <laughs> a pirate climbing up these big nets to go and unravel some sort of sail or i don't know maybe they would i don't know how you would you know reef reef one of these huge sailing vessels uh, but I imagine they had to do a, a, some form of it. A fair, a fair amount of pulling, and I and I believe that they didn't have the fancy, you know, one-way winches that modern sailing vessels have. Yeah, I don't think so. They probably just had manpower and. Yeah, I mean, like you can get a you can get a block and tackle, right? Uh, but it still goes the other way, and you don't want to catch your fingers in that. Yeah, I, I wonder if they they even had like a ratchet mechanism that was so, you know, concise because the ones that we were using the ratchets inside of the the tumbler so you could just like ratchet it they probably just had people you know like maybe those wooden ones where you spin it round right so i uh, i i really love pirate stories pirate stories are uh, some of the the neatest things and like pirates were you know terrible people to a certain extent you know just they, they it was a life of crime um but there is a specific pirate story that I am a big fan of, and it's the story of Steed Bonnet, who was uh, sometimes called the, the Gentleman Pirate. And he was actually like a wealthy landowner and then decided to, you know, l abandon his family and uh, go turn to a life of crime. And he was just like the worst pirate. Now, I don't remember the, the details of the story. I highly recommend you go and you... Uh, you read about it but there's this one part where you know everyone just kind of like all of his crew dislike him and he's terrible at what he does and then he meets uh blackbeard in uh barbados or somewhere around somewhere and he and blackbeard convinces him to allow Blackbeard, who currently didn't have a ship, to be the uh, the under-captain. So essentially, he reports to Steed, to the gentleman pirate, and then the crew report to him. Uh, but then, in true pirate fashion, Blackbeard just takes his ship and takes his crew. <laughs> and that's it. That is very interesting, uh, because I actually have a little snippet here. Uh, so on a ship, uh, there was quite a good level of democracy on the ship. So you would have the captain who would have uh, basically full control of the ship. And then there was a quartermaster who was a representative of the crew at the same level of the captain. But uh, only under battle would the captain have full authority. And what I found interesting is that both the captain and the quartermaster are elected in a democratic fashion. And at any time, they could hold an election, uh, which I think would be referred to as a mutiny, uh, and they could change the captain. So 
if you were a particularly bad captain and you or you weren't fair to your uh your sailors or the other pirates then you would you would be kind of voted out um and it was also quite interesting to just know about that quartermaster role who is almost like he speaks on behalf of the the he would you know bring the voice of the pirates to the captain and give that equal balance so that is quite interesting that is quite interesting and it's interesting that it's, it's come out in somewhat a way in that story where he was probably playing that role of the quartermaster uh where he was kind of like not the full captain but you know uh being the voice of the the pirates um which is quite interesting and i think i mean a lot of people probably they left the sort of normal world i think the the reason why people went to piracy piracy was probably because of you know when you're down and out you know what's better than going out into the sea and plundering some ships right well so it actually started out as uh as governmentally sanctioned privateering which was ships well uh, crews and ships that were uh allowed to go and harass and steal from other uh other countries or whatever's uh ocean going vessels to essentially hamper them because they were in conflict with say the crown at the time and then what happened is with a lot of them they just decided to not stop doing that hmm. i mean it's <laughs> it's like you know your your country's like you're allowed to do crime just to other countries and you live a life where you're just like fighting for your survival and also incredibly independent i can imagine at the end when you know the crown has resolved its issues with this other country or something it's like all right you're not allowed to do that anymore and you're like are are you going to stop me because the other countries couldn't stop me <laughs> that's it and it, and it's also it's a interesting thought experiment to think about how those battles played out. Yeah, we think about like modern warships, uh, but if you had like a, a huge sailing vessel, I mean, the, the one thing that I didn't really think about a lot was when you're at sea on a on a ship of this great magnitude, uh, and o- often there was fleets of ships of sailing ships, uh, and th- this is actually where the term flagship would be mm-hmm. about so that would be the ship where the admiral was uh, on and to to even direct the ships you know there's this huge commu- communication problem uh alongside the fact that most ships had their cannon batteries on the sides so you know in order to even get close to a, a uh, another ship and and for a long time the best attack mechanism was actually a boarding so you would fire cannons and that would be to almost scare because you don't actually want to sink them no because you want to board because you want the, yeah the and what i also found out was that uh you know the worst position to be on was uh when your uh is it the, the aft is facing the cannons uh, then you would get what's called raking fire where a cannonball would go along the decks almost uh so right in certain i mean i went through this like rabbit hole of you know different tactics of uh you know how they would position themselves so that 
it's almost better to have it side on because then you know the worst is the front and the back of the boat um and you know you also have the the fact that you know the, the best point of sail is around 70 degrees into the wind so all of these mm. different factors play into the fact of you know two nations battling it out on the on the open waters it must be quite a thrill yeah, what's pretty impressive is also how uh how pirates so you would have uh especially like caribbean pirates they tended to have just their ship and they used to become quite infamous in you know this was blackbeard's ship or uh whatever um whereas there is uh a chinese woman uh i don't know if i'm pronouncing this correctly but it's zeng yi xiao and she was a pirate leader who was active in the South China Sea from the beginning of the 1800s for about 10 years. And she uh, became like the unofficial commander of the uh, Guangdong Pirate Confederation. And her fleet was 400, uh, 400 um, vessels big. And there were between like 40,000 and 60,000 pirates essentially under her command. To the extent that, like, there were big conflicts between her and the East India Trading Company, the Portuguese Empire, and Qin China. So, the uh, in the during the um, the Qing Dynasty, and she was so powerful that that when they started, like, Qin, the Qing authorities put out you know warrants for her arrest and ransoms and everything, but she had an army. Well, a, a navy. So she decided to surrender after a pretty fruitful uh, career. So what she did is she sailed her uh, her fleet, or she, sorry, she took just like 24, 25 of her ships to the surrender. And because it wasn't like she wasn't really under threat at the surrender, is she managed to negotiate uh, with the Qing authorities that she retain a, subs- a substantial fleet and she avoid prosecution and she just wasn't going to do crime anymore. Oh, wow. Can you imagine being such a good pirate that authorities are like, well, just don't do it again. <laughs> don't do it. Uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on you. <laughs> um, it was quite interesting because I think, I, I believe the the East India Company only had a maximum of 200 ships at their height. So she would have definitely outnumbered them. Oh, but yeah. yeah. They, had, they had a number of routes where they would be quite protected. She was also she was also like a fearsome strategist, naval strategist. I mean, you don't become, you know, head of the pirate confederation, whatever, if mm. you aren't super competent and apparently she was you know one of the most experienced and just uh incredible ocean going people to date yeah it's uh it's just such a fascinating topic um and then you know today we just have like random people who go out and sail and they almost do it on a sport basis right there's no kind of need there's no sort of need to go sail and find 
this treasure and live this life it's uh yeah because we have we have two things right is we've got uh we've got cargo ships for moving cargo about and then we've got airplanes for moving people about yeah and so it's so sailing so individual sailing yachts are kind of like horses is Mm. there's absolutely no need for you to ever ride a horse but if you're into horse riding you can go and ride a horse yeah. What I do find fairly interesting is, uh, and we were chatting about this quite a bit when we were sailing, there is currently, it's currently very difficult to do like a proper crossing with anything that is fueled under a certain size, because the amount of fuel that you need to carry to, to make that kind of distance, require, it requires a lot of fuel and a lot of mass. So you can get across in a ship. But you can't get across in a small diesel-powered boat because that boat would not have enough would not have the capacity to carry enough fuel to make that crossing. So we're still reliant on sailing to make these, like yeah. a transatlantic crossing or like going to Indonesia. Yeah, and there's also all of these uh, newer technologies that are coming out to sort of retrofit container ships with these kind of Michelin Man-looking sailing uh, or sails. And they're even, you know, using that to counteract the the impact of the, the fuel. So I think you could get almost, I think I saw 10% and even up to 30% reduction in the amount of fuel just by harnessing the wind. Uh, obviously, you know, you have to, they have to rotate in a certain way because the, the best point of sale and all of, all of that good stuff. So um, it's going to be quite interesting. I mean, you think about ships coming in and out of Cape Town Harbor or into any harbor, it's going to be quite weird to see all of these ships with these massive... They'd probably take the sails down when coming into into harbor and just do the last bit purely on the diesel engine just because you don't have as much control. They still have quite a big mast, though. So this is a bit tangential, but it's something that I find quite fascinating is... Arguably the biggest increase in productivity or the biggest optimization that the shipping industry had wasn't the advent of diesel ships. It wasn't, you know, all these new technologies. What it was, was the standardization of containers. Because if you think of historically, you would have an ocean-going vessel that needs to be uh, packed up. So they would have to have a huge uh, crew lifting stuff up onto the ship, you know, or cranes, whatnot. And then they had to go and store this individually in the hold or on deck, right? And uh, that took a very, very long time to do, right? Packing a ship was was an art and it would be a very, very resource. And when I say resource intensive, I'm talking about like time and effort. Um, so once we standardized containers, every all, all the equipment at a dock and all of the ships uh, satisfy that standard. So you've got a crane that moves containers onto a ship that holds containers and it changed what would be a, you know, weeks long process to being a couple days long process for significantly more cargo. And it turns out that the amount of time in, in port, especially for, for like diesel ships and stuff, 
is super valuable because that could be time spent going to their next destination. And also because they, they don't turn off their engines. Their engines are still running on idle uh, because to actually start them again, they need to go through a very complicated multi-step process where they compress, use compressed air to, to essentially start moving that piston downwards. And then they need to have an electrical motor that is powered by a diesel engine because an ele- a diesel engine doesn't have enough torque to actually get the get the ball rolling. So it's it's incredibly difficult to restart a ship once it stops. So they'll pull into a port and they'll just leave it idling. Yeah. And then, you know, pack it, pack it, pack it, pack it, and then off they go. It's And it's a good thing you can't stall, stall a ship because <laughs> imagine like uh, you just stole the ship and then like oh no now we're gonna restart this whole thing <laughs> there aren't very many uphills on the ocean it's like ah just you know going uh going up over the equator <laughs> ah fuck yeah i mean it, it's actually it's actually quite interesting because like we think of it just as like a normal car where you have one person in control but you you basically have this factory or this this power plant that's just you know, like humming away and you mm. just up on the deck, you're just like moving the rudders. Uh, but there's, you know, like an engine master and they're, you know, making sure all of the pressure gauges are all right and um, all of those like complicated things. But it's just, you know, it's a lot more in depth than what we think about. So when you when you think about the amount of crew that is necessary to to crew an old school ship right because as you know when you're sailing you're pulling ropes and you're hoisting masts and you're you know furling the jib unfurling the jib you've got your genoa flying in the wind or not uh there's constant work that needed to be done is as soon as a ship was in the water and this is still the case right now it's a full-time job to stop it from just completely falling apart because the Mm -hmm. elements are are so rugged at sea you've got um corrosion seeping into everything that's uh that's metal and starting to chew away at that you've got wood starting to degrade and it needs another coat of paint uh etc 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 so when you have you know an old uh, an old uh ship Mm. you would actually have a crew of over a hundred people to just make sure that that ship runs right um that's crazy uh, like a, a ship of the a ship of the line like circa 1805 had a crew of between 750 and 900 people wow like i i went to like a i always think of in terms of like how many people were in my high school and there was probably about a thousand people so it's like my whole high school just running one one ship Right, and they had jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had stuff to do, and I, I can also imagine um, was it the galleys where they've got you know these big uh, oar powered boats. You know, you probably have like four people on an oar, and you're just like yeah, you know, along. And uh, and I think for a long time, the galley was the most maneuverable ship uh, until you know sailing became more prominent. Uh, just because of you know you just got one person say left and everyone just like you know <laughs> yeah to the one side and then you compare that to you know giant ships that you have now is 
if you uh, if you have a you know big cargo ship, um, it that is you know crossing these huge huge distances loaded with billions of dollars worth of uh, materials or goods etc etc is most of these vessels including your officers your uh, specialists like your electricians and your mechanics and your deckhands and your cooks and your oilers and all of that it's generally like 20 to 25 personnel right so so our ships have gotten huge and our personnel has shrunk to to nearly nothing all thanks to automation um and you know just the modernization but what what i still find fascinating is that they still there are still some remnants of like traditional sailing uh mm. i like the idea of the flags like you had uh the flag of where your ship is from and then you had a flag representing where you are ported so you always had to have uh you know like if you're in one port you have to have a flag for that country i thought that was quite nice and also you know they've got all the different you know Alpha, alpha, beta, foxtrot, all of the different flag types to indicate what's going on. Um, there's, uh, I guess, the whistles, maybe on the sort of bosun's whistle. Uh, mm -hmm. It's quite, quite interesting that a lot of that, I guess it's like a culture, right? It's this, like a sailing culture. And especially with some of the nautical terms, the reason why it became like that is because when it comes to, to a specific situation you don't have time to second guess what the captain is saying you know when they say hold fast on the on the jib you know you, you've got to got to know what you're doing so i mean that that actually uh, one of the first things that anyone getting into sailing will notice is that there are a lot of very obscure terms for things right mm -hmm. is everything on the boat has got a very specific name and there are also very specific terms for directions as well as uh, like uh, sides. So you don't say left and right. You've got your port and starboard and your fore and aft. And those aren't in relation to you, right? That's, on, that's in relation to the vessel. And yeah. that's because when you're inside of a situation that orders need to be given and, you know, there are like the lives of the crew and everything are at stake, there is no room for interpretation is there's no like hey grab the rope on the left and it's like is it your left or my left or is it the ship's left it's like no grab the rope port side you can even say to your port side which is in relation to the ship yeah but but it's not even a rope ropes are are not attached to the so it would be a sheet it would be a sheet yeah uh, which that one gave me a bit the, that one it takes a bit of a while to like get used to all of these this terminology but once once yeah. you're in it it makes perfect sense it's like okay yeah you know uh do those things attach the kringle to the bullhorn exactly and i guess that i mean that's the only way to really understand it is you need to really be immersed in the culture the lifestyle and the daily activities of sailors and i think that's probably why you need to have that logbook do you have plans to go sailing? I know we've just talked about it, so I'm obviously I'm keen um, to yeah. Some I've been on Crew Finder, looking at some people who want to do like a sail around somewhere. I don't know where you can sail in London. I guess on the Thames, but uh, I wouldn't say that's a thrilling thing to think about. Yeah, I'm 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 super keen. Uh, Whitney 
is has got big plans. I mean, she now owns a boat, the Habibi, and is currently uh, racking up her her hours in her logbook. Is going to be work is working on her skippers, her day skippers. Um, she's been doing sailing competitions and stuff. And if she needs a competent crew member just out to do a chill cruise, I'm happy to do that. Uh, she wants to do some some big stuff like uh, going to Antarctica, which she can't actually do in the Habibi. She'll have to do it in a seal hull boat because of the uh, the cold. Um, but that's really that's really cool. So. I do plan to do some sailing. Um, I'll definitely say that I have gotten a lot more into land travel since I got my <laughs> motorcycle. Uh, yeah. And I've, I've become like quite a grease monkey, so I can like do a bunch of stuff. Like I've been, you know, repairing engines actually this entire morning. Um, Very nice. That's also, I, I don't know much about diesel mechanics, which is what you would need for, for your sailing ships because yeah. they all are also diesel powered in you know, getting in and out of harbor mm. and stuff or on a very slow day. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I certainly do want to do more sailing. It's a lot of fun. It's beautiful. And it's it's one of those things where you you respect nature a lot more because you know that it is significantly more powerful than thou. Yeah. And someone put, put it, put it, I mean, it wasn't related to sailing, but it, it's got a certain, it requires a level of ingenuity as you're doing it. Uh, like you need to, I mean, you need to like get the engine running. So there's certain things that you need to pull. And if it's too cold, there's maybe a choke that you need to pull out. And, uh, you know, just to get it started, then you've got to like, you know, it takes a bit of finesse. It's not like just get in, turn on the key. You got to undo the plug. Yeah. You got to get everything out. You got to roll everything up. You got to, you know, I kind of like that process that's around it too. You know, setting it up. But then it's also uh, there's the maintenance aspect, right? I, like I was looking at boats, but I'm also quite aware that once you acquire one, then you have to maintain one. Yeah, exactly. But the reason why a lot of these boats are in such good shape after being around for thirty years is probably because they haven't been sailed that much. <laughs> and uh they're yeah i mean they're pretty much caravans on the water <laughs> some of them some of them but so right before we right before we hopped on this call uh there i was reading an article by these students in uh eindhoven uh the eindhoven university uh, where they built a camper van that was entirely electric powered. So, uh, sorry, uh, entirely solar powered. So it would have a bunch of lithium ion batteries and then like a big camper van roof just covered in solar panels. And on a sunny day, they could get as far as like 450Ks in that day. And mm. they were getting, you know, up to like, it was in miles per hour, 75 miles per hour, which is a good 110 kilometers per hour. And I reckon if you could do something like that but for a powered a powered sailing vessel that could be pretty neat is mm. you have an electric motor and you have um you have solar panels and i would go as far as to argue that you wouldn't even need a big battery bank you just make sure that you sail during the day because the sun coming up is more consistent than there being wind interesting um maybe i i think when it maybe on the ocean I feel like there would be more of a consistent wind, uh, but it depends. I guess it depends where you are. 
Um, I mean, the other thing is like you still got to charge your iPad when you still. <laughs> yeah, but you can you can do that. You can do that. Well, 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 the lights on. <laughs> well, the lights on. God's light. <laughs> but it's it's also interesting because I, I wonder what the power requirement. I mean, the reason why you have a big diesel engine uh, is because it probably requires quite a lot of power to push, you know, that boat through the water. Mm, that's fair. There's a lot more resistance in the water than there is on a road. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and also, like, I know uh, from people who have Priuses that you can get these very specific types of wheels that are, like, low rolling friction. Right, right. But, I mean, yeah. Ideally, if you could have an electrical boat, I think it would be quite good. Because, I mean, it's you're only really using that motor to get in and out of the harbor. Or if you're in irons, or if you're, you know, in the middle of nowhere. I reckon, I reckon a, a cool combination of the two would be neat. I'm, I, I think more for bigger vessels. Also, just kind of makes sense is like having a, uh, having a big cruise ship that also just it subsidizes its power with solar and with wind. Um, yeah. So instead of relying just on one, it actually has a bunch of different mechanisms that just increase the uh, the efficiency is i don't see i don't see cargo ships doing away with diesel anytime soon it's just too available of a power source i th- i think it's it's going to be like a it's going to be like a combination so there's going to be hybrid ships and you also get those uh vertical turbines so they spin around rather than having the wheel at the top so yeah those you can kind of stack on the on the roof of, or on, on the body of a sort of normal ship. And I think the main thing is also like retrofitting. Like, are you able to take existing investments and add onto it and, you know, retrofit the engines so that you can have this hybrid model. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see all of those things come to, come to light. Uh, Cause it's definitely something that's eating the planet. Uh, and I think a lot of, Although at the moment it seems like there's a lot of problems with global trade, uh, but whether that's a topic for another session, then yeah, we'll have to. So let's let's talk about uh, sailing from a lifestyle perspective. Just just before we end off this episode, because um, I could certainly see myself as getting a doing what Whitney is potentially looking to do, getting a small boat, right mm. and just spending like a year or two just going from port to port and yeah. doing that as a form of slow travel because i'll say it right now i hate i hate airports i hate that form of travel it's just the most convenient way to get to another location but because i'm also not in a rush right now is why yeah. not you know take a decent amount of time to you know go and hop between these ports do some work on the shore um then get back on the boat the next week um and off i go i think uh john o'nolan who's the uh creator of ghost is currently doing that i mean i i think it's uh it's something that a lot of people are probably thinking right now is you know instead of living your day to day why aren't you going off island hopping uh and i mean there's no reason not to it's 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 kind of sad that if you're working a nine to five that you don't have the opportunity to even do that. I mean, a typical crossing usually takes about a month. So in a t- I mean, I'm not talking about America, but even in, you know, UK, 
you only get like 21 days leave like throughout the year like 21 consecutive so you've only mm. just got enough to do that so if you wanted to spend you know two days in each stop then you've you've kind of out of space and it's it's quite a shame that more people don't yeah, absolutely absolutely so to uh to end off this episode uh what are you what are you currently working on what's your life like i mean it's quite interesting i'm still trying to find a place it turns out that uh september october is when everyone comes back to university or starts university in in the uk and because everything's open there's a huge influx of people into london uh so the property market is pretty yeah it's saturated with people coming in so finding a place has been a bit tough uh so yeah but that's me and you my mom uh came through she i haven't seen her since december since i was in the states oh. the last time she popped into cape town and it's uh it's been very nice seeing her we went out for dinner last night and then all this morning i realized my my bike was having a hard time starting and it's because the aftermarket air filter that was installed by the previous owner was causing it to run rich, which is too much fuel, not enough air. Uh, so went tonight, got it running nicely. And yeah, life's good. Summer in Cape Town, summer is here. I am into it.